Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo. It's more than just a podcast. It's a source of insights to keep you tapped into all things data-driven so that you can be the most informed technical expert in the virtual room. Listen in weekly to stay educated on the latest trends in backup, recovery, storage, cloud, and security. Today, I have a special guest. I have Mike Voss, who is the founder and CEO of EtherGap, and he has worked in the IT security and infrastructure industry for over three decades. So, Mike, welcome to Data Protection Gumbo. How are you? Excellent. Thank you for having me. Well, great. Why don't you start off by giving us a quick rundown of EtherGap? So, as you mentioned, I've been in uh, what we now call cybersecurity since before it was called that. And in those three and a half decades, I've had a total of exactly zero clients ever compromised, breached, ransomed, etc. Usually we get called in after something like that happens, which is a lot more difficult. In those all those years, we've developed a lot of specialized tools that we use in-house. And in the early days uh, of cybersecurity, we worked a lot. I was in the ISP business and came to work with a lot of people in uh, federal government, particularly the FBI, assisting them with cybersecurity-related matters. And we, the EtherGap is a tool that we developed because air gapping has been a best practice for as long as I've been in the business. And we used air gaps routinely to protect the backups, specialized networks, and other resources of our clients. But if you use an air gap, you know it's kind of inconvenient to use and very difficult, if not impossible, to automate. And we developed uh, a hardware tool, which we call the EtherGap in-house, to do that and have been using it for about four years now. And at some point, I showed this to one of my um, FBI contacts who's on EtherGap's board now, and he said, you've got to get this out into the world. Other people are going to want to use this. And so we set about getting a patent, which we got this past August. Congratulations. And now EtherGap is available. Thank you. For once, I was first on something. (laughs) What is it like building a piece of hardware in today's software-defined, virtualized, and everything in the cloud world? And so you go and build a, a physical device, a piece of hardware. What, what is that like today when it seems like others are kind of moving in the opposite direction? That's a good question. I know you had my, my friend David Heinmeier Hansen on here recently. Yes. And whether that trend will continue, I think, is uh, questionable. <laughs> but I, I think what people forget is that there really is no such thing as the cloud, right? It's just somebody else's systems and networks. Um, there is always metal behind everything. There's something I say a lot to people who are getting into the business now or, you know, or about them is that, you know, this guy couldn't find the metal with a magnet because they just they think that everything has always been cloud based. Every service we use, everything we do on the Internet, there is hardware behind it. It's just a question of do you know what it is and can you uh, access it or do you have control of it? So it's really not as novel as people think it is. Our, our world is a physical world that runs on hardware. So I think it's more of a challenge when you're, you're out looking for funding because all, all a lot of uh, investors care about now is, is it cloud-based and does it have recurring revenue, which I think is a bad mindset that a lot of them are going to come to regret in the current economy. Um, but from the point of view of technology, um, it's just not as unusual as people would think. Um, and 
you know, we, we all are dependent on hardware for pretty much everything we do every day. We're greatly dependent. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. And I will admit there has been a lot of hype around certain buzzwords like digital transformation and cloud Web3. and mo yeah, multi-cloud, Web3, GPT, chat. I mean, AI, ML, there's a lot of different terms out there in the technology world that um, industry pundits and also people like myself uh, are guilty sometimes of, of utilizing those terms. But I really want to go a little deeper into AirGap. And since you, you have a pretty um, deep understanding of AirGap and you mentioned that at one point you were, I guess, working for or with the FBI, or whatever. But what, what's your definition of, of AirGap? Because I've seen virtual air gap, logical air gap, all different types of air gap from your perspective. What's your definition? That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked it. The physical and air gap is a term that's used in a lot of contexts. If you go searching for it, it's used in electronics with capacitors. It's used in plumbing <laughs> with drains. Um, so it's context specific and the context of computers and networks and air gap has a very specific meaning and it means interruption of layer one of the OSI model and the OSI model layer one is the physical layer, the actual media cables, buses that your data trans uh, uh, travels over. If you do not have an interruption of layer one, make no mistake about it, you do not have an air gap. What you have is an approximation of an air gap, or generally a VLAN is what you really have, a virtual LAN. And you do not have the level of security that an air gap affords. And there's a real danger to this because there's a lot of companies rolling out products now where they say, hey, this is, has a virtual air gap. And people hear the part of that that says air gap and they think, wow, that's gotta be greatly secure. And not only is it not greatly secure like an air gap, but now they've been given the false illusion that they have a level of security that they when the, the signals to control the air gap are on the same media as the air gap itself, it is easily compromised. It's just a VLAN. And whoever gets in and has access to that device can trip that air gap and get your data, uh, your network, whatever's being protected. So just to, to be clear, an air gap is an interruption of the physical layer and anything else is not an air gap hmm. and not secure. So I guess, you know, because what, what I see individuals doing now, they are, you know, creating these virtual solutions, right? Like in, in the public cloud, AWS or Azure or uh, what, Google Cloud, the equivalent to what you just mentioned, you think it's possible to, I guess you can do it, but is one more or less effective regardless of if it's a physical thing or if it's a virtual thing? Definitely. Um, I'll, I'll put a million dollars up that no one can get past an ether gap. I don't think anybody would probably do that with a virtual air gap or a VLAN. Um, because whatever hardware you're operating it on can have a zero day uh, or can have an unknown exploit or maybe can be brute forced. And when the control of the air gap is entirely out of band, which is how an ether gap works. That possibility doesn't exist. So, and you hear, this will probably come up. So now you hear a lot of uh, exotic stories 
about jumping the air gap. Most of these come from researchers at Ben Gurion University in Israel, where they've been focusing for years on doing this. There was a lot of talk about this subject with the Stuxnet um, zero days that came out because at some point to get into the uranium reactor sites, they, they bypassed an air gap, but it was done with human resources. They had physical access to the site, got a USB drive or something in there and did it. So in the real world, the instances of real air gaps being compromised are closer to zero than any other security measure that there is. And that's why they've been a standard best practice with you name it, NIST, uh, CISA, FBI, DOD, DOJ, going back to the 1970s. Uh, it works. It's just always been a hassle. To and you, you mentioned backups earlier, and obviously that's my sweet spot. That's where I've spent 20 plus years as an administrator and also on the marketing, the technical marketing side, and also now as a an evangelist. Uh, what's your take on like backup storage devices and, and air gap? Because I, I know from your perspective and ether gap, you have a certain way of how you would actually handle a backup system. Can you explain that to us? Yeah. I mean, now backups are the best example of data that needs to be protected by an air gap, you know, bar none. There are a number of scenarios where you want to protect data and systems, but that is probably the most important of, of them all. My first job out of college was doing was swapping out disk packs on PDP-11s at night for the IEEE Computer Society where I worked. And that was, I didn't really know it at the time, but I was doing air gap backups. But that practice got into my head how important it was. And back in those days, you were more likely to have an error or omission cost you data because we weren't 100% connected yet like we are today. Um, but that structure stuck in my mind um, through my whole career and has always been followed. There's a saying in the military and the special forces, they say two is one and one is none. And that is what really applies to backups. If you don't have one good copy of everything, you really have none because you just have no way to recover. So the ether gap, most people that are using it, most places, that is the number one function is it'll sit on a network and the ether gap is, is, is dual state. It can disconnect one, one network while connecting another. So a really common scenario is it'll be connected to a customer's LAN and the normally closed side will be connecting the LAN to the internet and the normally open side, which is air gapped, will have their backup arrays or devices. And then once a day at like 4 a.m. or something, the gap will close. It will connect the backup devices to the LAN, disconnect the internet from the LAN. The backups will run and then it'll get reversed and everything will get put back that way. Really important aspect of that scenario is that the backup drives are never connected to the LAN when the internet is connected. So they have death laid from each other. As we say, they can never see each other. So if someone breaks into your system during the day and gets control of your LAN, they don't know that those backups even exist because they're physically disconnected. If you've set it up properly, there's no indication that there is. Okay, so I, I guess this is part of, um, it, it would be great to be as part of a, you, you're familiar with the NIST cybersecurity framework? Absolutely. Like detect, identify, recover, something else, I forgot. But <laughs> yes. as far as recovering and being able to respond to something like a ransomware event. So where does, I guess, the, the ether gap sit as it pertains to the NIST cybersecurity framework? Where, where does that sit? And how does it uh, actually kind of help 
with within that particular framework. So I know you did. Uh, I haven't had time to listen to you, but I know you had a guest on recently to talk about verified backups. Oh yes, Chris. And a backup, yeah. And the backup, um, the first thing you want to do when you get a backup, any backup, right, is get a checksum on it and know that it's okay. This this tells this checksum tells me that this backup is good. Our best implementations using the EtherGap do that immediately after the backup is taken. And then on some regular interval, once an hour, once a day, whatever, it will check some of that backup again, and it will be, the status will be known as good okay. uh, in the logs. So uh, if I take a backup today and it's, it's ether gapped, and then a week from now something comes up, I can look at the logs. I know I have a viable um, backup ready to restore from right now. It's a certainty I can restore and um, I can recover. So if I got ransomed, I can tell the ransomers to go pound sand, restore to bare metal, and I'm back in business. Nice. And where does encryption sit within this whole model? Is that something that's also a part of um, what's being done here? Yes. It's typically backups are going to be encrypted. One, one, one factor, though, when you're air gapping a backup, it makes your, your encryption, depending on your scenario, maybe a little less crucial because you know that people are not going to get to it if you're doing it properly. But to really be safe, I mean, because particularly if you're in a cloud environment, I mean, you don't know how many threats you have. You don't know how many people have access to that environment. You don't know how many have root access, et cetera. So encrypting it is the, is the best gold standard. And then um, taking your checksum after the encryption has occurred so that you know that you have a good encrypted copy. That's the gold standard. Particularly in, in government uh, sectors and defense, our clients are always going to be doing that because they have as per like the NIST standard, they have uh, requirements that they have to meet on storage of data at rest, and that is how they do it. So the air gap portion of it um, is common, and then the degree to which people want to further protect that data by doing verification or by doing encryption um, is up to them. And we have some products in the work in the future to integrate those things while still keeping you know, all the work that we do with the air gap out of band, but that's not mm -hmm. a little bit. Okay. Do you have any stories around ransomware, like maybe recovering from ransomware or someone that had to pay the ransom? I'm not looking for names, but I'm just looking for kind of interesting lessons to be learned here. As you know, the, the really terrible stories make the news in cybersecurity and the good ones we never hear about. Mm. Um, we have had right, an entity, yeah. a, a small government related entity uh, using EtherGap and doing verified backups who had a, had a breach, had an attempted ransom, and was able to recover and didn't, didn't even really lose any time uh, to downtime. Um, they were shrewd enough that they were checksumming their backups on a, a daily, they were doing backups on a daily basis and checksumming them. And the malware was introduced through an executable from a vendor and they're also smart enough that they keep their, their executables kind of separate from their data so they can restore one or the other or both uh, when it, it comes up. So they knew that it was limited to a, a modification of an executable. You know, they got the, the proper executable back when they restored, restored their data, and went on their merry way. Nobody was, other than a day's uh, availability of mm -hmm. the, the local network, okay. no impact. And what advice would you give to a, a CISO today? Because... I'm I'm not sure I would want that job because it's super high profile now. It's board level. 
I mean, they're, they're in, in some pretty, you know, strenuous conversations nowadays. And you, you see them also sitting in at, at Congress, you know, testifying or, you know, having to kind of be in the hot seat when it pertains to a breach or something like that. But what advice would you give to a, a chief information security officer today just openly about what you know with uh, your company and what you run around security? Well, we now also even see them... Uh being prosecuted, right? Cases like Uber and such. So there's something I, and I don't know if you've ever done anything like this term I kind of coined in my head. I have this thing I call the backup challenge. And when somebody hires us on my consulting side that I have all that would hire us to come out, I would walk in and pick a piece of equipment and disconnect it and say, this just failed or was compromised, restore. And I would just sit back and watch the chaos because invariably, no one had run this drill. It wasn't down, you know, if you, if you ever learned to fly and you're with a, you're with a flight trainer, they'll reach over and, and pull the throttle back and say, you have engine failure, recover. You know, and I look at it kind of similarly and you have, you better know what to do. And it will invariably involve a checklist of some kind for this scenario. Uh, if you go to your, if you're a CISO and you go and do this to, or, or hire us and we do it for you, and do it to your IT team and they don't have anything prepared and don't know what to do, you're going to need to fire some people. Okay, I, I hate to say that, but it's that serious. But hold on, it, w- wouldn't it wouldn't it be the CISO's responsibility to make sure that they have those procedures and processes and recovery plans like already in line? Yeah, absolutely. So okay, okay, you wouldn't have to fire them the first time necessarily, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you have to get those procedures in place. We had a client. We were uh, referred a client about five years ago. And in the initial consult, they told us that they had been breached and ransomed four times. And, and I must have looked shocked because they asked me if that was unusual. And I said, no, that's unheard of. Their IT was entirely outsourced. And they said, what's the first thing we need to do? And I said, There's, this is not even for discussion. We need to fire that outsourced team immediately yeah. to go because they're either incompetent or they're in collusion with uh, the ransomers. Point being, this is this is a serious, this is an all or nothing gamble. Like, if you have to push in all, all in on this and you don't have the cards, you lose. And somebody else is going to be making that determination of when that's going to happen, not you. So the best thing you can do as a CI, as a CISO, is to run this drill tomorrow. <laughs> see what the results are, make the adjustments, do the things you need to do, and then down the road to surprise, run it again in a different manner. And see if you get the results you want. And if you don't, you got to keep making changes or get new people. Have you heard of Chaos Monkey? Yes. From Net- Netflix? I think yes. it's Netflix, right? <laughs> yes. It's a, good, it's a good good book and a good good series, I understand. Yeah, kind of a, a similar thing where it, I think it was an auto, automated fashion of just randomly taking down certain pieces of whatever that entire IT infrastructure is that the, the business ran on, just going through and offlining and taking things off to see how the the SREs, site reliability engineers, and how the support team and everyone involved would uh, respond and how long it would take for them to kind of get back up and, and, and running and operational. Yeah, and the result is that they had great, great uptime that developed out of that. Yeah, right. Resiliency was bar none, right? And so I think the name of the game now is, are your systems resilient? Are you, do you have people, processes, and procedures in place so that all of those things can continue operating uh, if something was to happen and hit the fan, 
because you're going to need all of those things in order to be um, successful and to and to continue to be operational. What are you reading these days? Are you 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 reading anything interesting? Anything on your nightstand that you you have to read every day for you? Sing lullabies. <laughs> I, I read voraciously. There's probably nine books on my nightstand, and there's always one in progress on my Audible, uh, which I find makes it a lot easier for me to devour books <laughs> when I'm doing other things. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. There's a reread on my nightstand right now, one of my favorite books, that if, if somebody said to me, you, uh, you're going to be on a desert island for a year and you can take one book, right? This is the book that I would take. Oh, and not a lot okay. of people have heard of it, but I've given I used to keep copies to give away. Uh, it's by a gentleman, a psychiatrist. He's passed away now named Gordon Livingston, and the book is called Too Soon Old, Too Late Smart. And it's about what he discovered, the shortcuts to the most important things he discovered in his 30, 40 years as a psychiatrist. And it is a profound book, very easy reading, and it, it, it's life-changing. It really is. It's a great book. So I can't recommend it highly enough. Okay. Can you repeat that title one more time? Yeah, it's Too Soon Old, Too Late Smart. Hmm. Okay. A great book. I'll check it out. I also love to. Oh, there's a be technical, so nobody wants to hear about those. Right. But. Yeah. In Any final or closing thoughts, uh, maybe overall just from a you know cybersecurity perspective? And oh, oh maybe also for a, a, a new college graduate, right, that's looking to get into the IT space and especially the security side of the house. Any advice for them? Sure. Um, I'll answer both questions in order. The, the first, the general thing is, uh, in my time in this business, it only gets more busier as time goes by. And 20 years ago, we had to try to convince people to take cybersecurity seriously. We don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to look for business. It comes to us. Um, that trend is only going to continue. And particularly if, if we head into a recession or something, it gets worse a lot faster. So I think people need to be prepared. This is, this is here to stay uh, for the foreseeable future and act accordingly. For anyone coming into the business, you new uh newly graduated or otherwise you know if you come to work for us the first thing you're probably going to do is learn to make cables <laughs> quite honestly <laughs> you're going to learn the, the hardware side of the business are those but rj45 cables you're talking about you better be able to, to crimp an rj45 <laughs> and test it you know because 99 percent of the data that you're you're using every day is flowing over those cables and you better know the osi seven layer model learn hardware put as at least half as much emphasis on it as learning software, and you will have a tremendous advantage over your peers. Um, when we do cybersecurity, when we red team a place or something, we go out there and, you know, we're looking at door locks, ceiling tiles, everything, because an intruder is always going to take the path of least resistance. And if they can get to the physical wires or they can get to your, your routers or your firewall, they're going to do it. So don't discount hardware, as we were talking about earlier. It, is more important than people realize. Okay, great advice there. And I really appreciate the time that you've taken to enlighten us around, you know, cybersecurity and also some of um, your experiences around just overall protection of uh, different assets and, you know, data, et cetera. I really appreciate you being a guest on Data Protection Gumbo. My pleasure. This is a very necessary podcast and I'm, I'm glad you're doing it to listen to all the back episodes that I haven't gotten to as time goes by.
All right. Well, there's almost uh, what 170 something now. So it will take a while. <laughs> it may it may take a while. Just don't listen to the first 50 because uh, they're they're kind of horrible. <laughs> That's just me. I'll take your word. <laughs> <laughs> we're all our own All right, Mike. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.